Last year, I had the opportunity to list my Montecito guest house on Airbnb. This was part of a special project that Airbnb spearheaded to build connection and to make the world feel a little less lonely. It was such a pleasure to get to know my Airbnb guests over dinner and share my home with them so that they could rest and recharge on their trip. But typically, the beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Being a host on Airbnb is great for those who travel frequently, have extra space, or own a seasonal home. If you've stayed at an Airbnb, you know the unique experience it offers. And now you can share that same experience with others in addition to earning additional income on the side. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com slash host. When you are pioneering anything or introducing new ideas to the culture, you get criticized. You do? Yeah. <laughs> Did you hear about that? <laughs> I didn't find the one. I found someone I respected and we made it the one. In the sort of longing kind of view of love, people understand each other as if by magic. Nothing in itself is addictive on the one hand. On the other hand, everything could be addictive if there's an emptiness in that person that needs to be filled. I now know that nobody changes until they change their energy. And when you change your energy, you change your life. I'm Gwyneth Paltrow. This is the Goop Podcast, bringing together thought leaders, culture changers, creatives, founders and CEOs, scientists, doctors, healers and seekers, here to start conversations. Because simply asking questions and listening has the power to change the way we see the world. Here we go. My guest today is Lake Bell. Lake is an actress, screenwriter, producer, and director. She's also a good friend of mine. We sat down today to chat about Lake's brilliant new audiobook called Inside Voice. In it, she explores the power of the human voice and the role it plays in gender, politics, sexuality, and identity. In this conversation, Lake and I talk about what we can learn about society and ourselves through sound. We talk about why we're drawn to certain voices and the ways that we perceive different dialects, accents, and tones. We also unpack the phenomenon known as the sexy baby voice and why we all tend to hate listening to the sound of our own. So let's get to today's conversation with Lake Bell. Hi, bro. Look at us all grown up. I miss you. I miss you too. I haven't seen you in person in too long. It's actually been a very long time. <laughs> yeah. Did you, did you see the text I sent you last yeah. night? Because the last time that we had spoken, it was very hilarious. Subject, <laughs> the, ma- the matter of subject. <laughs> but let's move forward. Okay. So let's get our voices wet and open and relaxed. And How do I move- do that? Well, let's start with the breath. Okay. Big inhale. Exhale. Great. Now we've arrived for each other here, Gwyneth. Is that all I have to do? Are we not going to do any exercise? Well, you could do this. You could, what you can do is pretend that you have, you know, this classic, I mean, cause you and I know this, but you know, you pretend you have a piece of really big chewing gum and you, mm-hmm. and you're eating it and it's the, it's like mm-hmm. you put two pieces in. Mm-hmm. And you were like, why did I do that? I should have just big done one. Chew, the whole it's bag. Big lead- oh, well, you and I know the big league chew is one of the greats. Does that and still exist? I think it does. I think it does. And we're going to find out by the end of this. 
Fuck someone will Google it. But anyway, so you got Big Lee chewing that and you're chewing and it's kind of like towards the end Mm, of um, the Big Lee chew experience where it's getting tougher. And that's when you're chewing and that's when all of your muscles and all the little intricacies of movements in your mouth mm. are open and loose mm. and ready to rock. And we do not do this every day. So it, it's sad because in a way our vocal tool mm-hmm. our is the main, it's our main line to communication with all of our loved ones, our work ones, and at all. And it's, this is what the book is about. So <laughs> I feel like there are a lot of things that you could write a book about. Right. Well, and I, mean, I think so. Thank you. But you, you've you chosen to write a book about voice and what it conveys, right? About identity and gender and strength and, and power or lack thereof. Yeah. I mean, I feel very upfront and honest about the fact that it has been a lifelong obsession. I think yeah. that voice is something that we play with on a daily basis, but it's also the kind of trait that we don't really pay attention to. We're mm-hmm. we're very concerned about kind of what our hair looks like and what our face looks like, what we're wearing, what we're donning on a daily basis, how we present our image in that way. And then our voice, which is, I, I've just always been really pulled and and sort of almost emotionally and moved by certain voices and then repelled and repulsed by others. And I'm like, well, what's going on? Mm-hmm. Are these judgments? Are these like predispositions? Why am I so interested in it? And in my own self, I just started noticing I use my vocal tool just all the time in in, as I said, play, but then also in in work and I look at other people and I go, gosh, it's really interesting. You can you can tell so much about someone when they open their mouth. Sure. When they walk in, you're gonna you're gonna do the the full scan, even whether you like it or not, you're gonna do a scan visually of what they are bringing to the table from an aesthetic point of view. But then when they open their mouth, say you know, someone walks in, they look really powerful. And if they are like, so listen, I was just thinking. Maybe if we put the tables to the side, we could have more space. Now, honestly, if we put the tables to the side in this hypothetical situation, it probably would make more space. But I can't hear any of the words that person is saying because I personally have a bone to pick with that particular affectation. And why? Is it genetic? Is it because of conditioning? You've been conditioned to hear that as annoying or... Yeah, I think that I think it's kind of a feminist issue. I coined it, you know, sexy baby voice when I wrote in a world and and played that out in in real time in a narrative. But it's interesting when I wrote this book, which is an audio book, of course, and can only live in the audio space given it's about sounds. But Malcolm Gladwell and I were, you know, we've been friends for a long time. And he sort of was like, you know, you've written this whole chapter about the sexy baby voice mm-hmm. and you've been very political. You've been very sort of like diplomatic and I understand you want to learn from it, but also uh, you got a bone to pick. So let's talk about it. You know, why? And also, you know, are you judging yourself for judging? And I was like, correct. What about, wait, how is it? It's like, Sometimes I think that everybody is a sexy baby. 
Well, you heard okay. that? I just saw, I've just been told about this. Dude. <laughs> I know. And I Taylor I don't... Swift is she is on your cultural vibes. Listen, I don't know if she was referring to sexy baby as a cultural stamp of a certain type of woman who speaks that way, or if she was talking about something else. No, but you know what? Taylor Swift lyrics are always a mystery that we're trying to decode. Yeah. I mean, I want to feel connected. I want to feel connected to her. (laughs) So can we just double click on the sexy baby thing for a minute? Because even before I feel Taylor Swift ratified your philosophy or song lyric. It's funny because it's a very pervasive voice in our culture right now. Mm -hmm. A lot of people have it. And I'm wondering, is that a natural voice or are women in our culture being shown like a visual with a voice template together that consciously or subconsciously causes them to lean into this voice or, or create the voice? And why do you think it's annoying to some feminists? I think of the sexy baby voice as an amalgamation of pitch, which is up, so speaking higher than your natural sound. Mm-hmm. It is also vocal fry, oh, which is that croak. It annoys me. Oh my yeah, god! Yeah, a lot of vocal fry, both in men and women. Mm-hmm. And then, additionally, the the sort of sprinkle on it is the up talk. Mm-hmm. So if you're if you're adding all those things together, oh it's God. like it is that kind of c- cocktail, right? Now, is I, it infantilizing? So it's like this is my theory: is that okay. it is infantilizing. It harkens back to a time when you were submissive, mm-hmm. right? Interesting. Which is why feminist. little girl, right? Yeah, and why why do we want to? You know, it's like that's the, that's the feminist like bone to pick, I think on it, because it's like, well, why are you, okay. So, so why is it that you are expressing your, your main tool of communication and expression is broadcasting that you're just a little girl, right? I'm not saying I, you know, I don't have, I have actually a friend that I talk about in the book who, who just has a high Pit. She just has a higher pitch sound. She has a spring, a little bit of fry, but really it's just kind of how she fell off the truck. She's not mm-hmm. leaning into something and athletically trying to, le- you know, sort of achieve that affectation. Whilst I think some people, and you can see it in the, in the show, <laughs> Love is Blind, I kind of reference her too. Again, it's almost, we're coming at it from a sociological point of view. We're not even like, you know, hey, screw you, you do this thing. We're, we're talking about it because we're like, wow, this is this is incredible. But there's a woman on there and she she really vacillates. She she will she will code switch, aka style shift, which is how we sort of distinguish it mm-hmm. from speaking kind of like this to the mm-hmm. to the camera and say, look, you know, I'm talking to this guy. I really like him. And then when you see her in IRL with the guy like in, in courtship, she's talking like that. And she said, oh yeah, let's, let's pop open some champagne. Like it's really like a vast mm-hmm. difference. And that's really interesting. So it's like, okay, there's something in courtship in sexuality in mm-hmm. like presenting yourself as something like sexy and submissive, you know, mm-hmm. bedroom voice in a way. 
Last year, I had the opportunity to list my Montecito guest house on Airbnb. This was part of a special project that Airbnb spearheaded to build connection and to make the world feel a little less lonely. It was such a pleasure to get to know my Airbnb guests over dinner and share my home with them so that they could rest and recharge on their trip. But typically, the beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Being a host on Airbnb is great for those who travel frequently, have extra space, or own a seasonal home. If you've stayed at an Airbnb, you know the unique experience it offers. And now you can share that same experience with others in addition to earning additional income on the side. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com slash host. You know what strikes me as we're talking about this is there are also many incredibly powerful women in our culture now who have this. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm wondering if it's not on some level really working to present yourself as, you know, if you are, if you have power and money and influence, right. And brains, and yet you're making yourself kind of more palatable because the voice is kind of belying the strength of the feminine, right? So you're, you're kind of saying like, I'm a really powerful person in the culture, but I'm not intimidating because. Yeah. It's disarming. Right. Like, is that, do you think that that's a secret weapon in some way? Like if we're trying to move women's strength and power and influence forward in the culture. Mm-hmm. Like, is it is it kind of a genius? <laughs> totally. It's a Trojan horse. I feel like this book has been like a post-grad, you know, course in, in sociology and pathology and linguistics. And I, you know, I think my my biggest lesson that I've learned is it's how we listen. It's not as much how we speak (laughs) and, and it's how I listen. I mean, I'm calling myself out on a daily basis. I'm like, okay, so you're interviewing someone for the position of your assistant or your, you know, your production coordinator or something like that. And if they come in and they have great credentials, like terrific resume, and they come in and they, they kind of talk like that. I have to adjust how I'm listening because I can't make. I can't profile her or somehow judge her that she is less than somehow or doesn't think the world of herself, right? But I would agree with you, Gwyneth, like I I like the idea of it being a Trojan horse. I think that we as a society could listen and not be so, so kind of repelled by mm-hmm. a feminine sound, right? Like, well, I think if it feels out of integrity is where it feels triggering on some level, right? It feels like if if it's a if it's an extreme affectation, right? Then it's then then that's hard. I mean, that's hard for me personally on any level. If I feel like I'm talking to somebody and they're out of integrity, that's hard to build a foundation from with someone, right? So if you feel like a vocal affectation, it's the same with like someone pretending they have a British accent or yeah, <laughs> you know, it's like any 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 vocal affectation that's out of integrity is still gonna feel like someone who's out of integrity. Totally. I mean, I, I think that, you know, for instance, you and I, okay. 
we both have what some might stamp as a, a generalized American accent, right? I mean, w- would you agree with that? Yeah. We were schooled in New York City, so I don't think we have, you know, I, we have that kind of generalized kind of newscaster approved kind of, right? But that is a strong accent, you know, in, in terms of linguistics. I mean, this is a very strong accent that is we it? are speak. Yes. Funny, you lose perspective. I of mean, course. I guess if you're like in North Carolina, it sounds like we have a strong accent. Oh my God. When I lived in, in the UK, what, I mean, which you have done too, it's like going to drama school there. They were like, well, we need to get rid of your accent. You know, it's like, it was like, you have got a very strong accent, you know? And I was like, oh yeah, me being ethnocentric, sort of thinking, no, you guys have the accents. They're like, no, 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 no. (laughs) We've got to get the irons out, you know? And it was like that idea that that we are the baseline, but that's very American, right? Then of course, you know, newscasters, I, I sort of think of them in that space of, well, they have to be articulate. Right. So they're finding an accent that kind of is the baseline. However, the UK has the most extraordinary kind of caste system and hierarchical. I was uh, just going to say that it's so fascinating. I remember when I was living there, I was having a conversation with someone and he was like, I'm trying to work out your accent because he was trying to understand how posh or not posh I was. And that to me, always fascinated me so much that you could, if someone in England opens their mouth and says one sentence, like they (laughs) click right into a hierarchy, right? And everybody knows, and it makes everybody comfortable, weirdly. I think that it makes some people more comfortable than others. I think that there is a sense of profiling that goes on. You think so? I, I found anyway, that it was so deeply embedded in the culture there for so many generations that it was like, I don't know. Even though I, I think it's kind of fucked up. I think that I, I I think it's probably, you know, it probably works for both of our, our both of our experiences are real and thus, you know, yeah. it, it, it's all good. But I think that being there, I just lived there for four years and I remember being the only American at my college and even I got guff, you know, it was like this idea that the American accent was it's not as posh, you know, as, as the crow flies in the kind of the hierarchical kind of layout of what is accepted and not in the UK system that said, you know, yeah, if someone told all that, you know, like people are going to be like, okay, that's so sweet. It reminds me of EastEnders or, you know, like whatever there's a nostalgia. You're Adele. That's awesome. I wish I was you. Exactly. (laughs) No, I know. I think now it's even better. It's, you know, culturally we're on, I I hope that we are, you know, we are skiing on waters that are headed towards the right direction, but there's just, it's a long, it's a long lake. (laughs) I mean, I, (laughs) no pun intended. I think that one positive aspect of, you know, social media and globalization is Mm -hmm. that it's brought different paradigms of voices, bodies, you know, whatever. It's like brought even a permission, right? That you can be from any background, you can look any way and you can be a rock star. You can transcend. Sound, sound anyway. Yeah. Yeah. I agree with you. I think the beauty of that connectivity, that's the, that's the silver lining of the Instagram and social media behemoth as it were. But I think in terms of voice, you know, even just Within our country, we definitely 
have that. And I, I spoke with Professor John Baugh about, for instance, AAVE, African-American vernacular English, and the kind of the birthplace of it, and that it, it's a historical dialect that is embedded in rich history. And the amount of profiling that occurs mm-hmm. with AAVE is 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 his life's practice, basically. He mm-hmm. talks about vocal profiling. And so in the book, we dig in. And those are sensitive topics where we can all talk about it from a place of, of academia, and we're in a safe place to ask questions. And he sort of feels like, again, it's within the listener's bias, right? He has this anecdote where you know, he was, he's a professor and he was changing cities. And so he called up back in a time where we would look up classified ads for an apartment and he called up and, you know, he has a more generalized American dialect on his, on his daily, he's African-American, but he keeps kind of a, I don't know, newscastery kind of sound. And he called up in that dialect, which is a dialect. And he's asked for, Hey, you know, he said the same thing. Hello. I was interested in the apartment is it still available? And can I come see it? You know, and they say, sure. Yeah, of course. Come on down, you know? And then he called up and said the same exact phrase, you know, in, I think he used like a classically Latinx dialect and they, they literally said it is, it has already been rented. And that was within 10 minutes. He's like, okay, so that is so interesting. We've got like Mm -hmm. legitimate app, just flagrant, vocal profiling happening. Nobody has seen anyone. We have the same, you know, same Mm -hmm. stats in terms of the words that we said. It's not in performance. It is fully in just the dialect. So from that point, that was a springboard for his extensive work. And, you know, for me, I'm just like, gosh, how, how freeing to be able to, to talk and think about that through the lens of a multitude of dialects. How about another woman I spoke to who's from the deep, deep, deep rural South farmland, And she wanted to be a journalist, Becca. She's like, I want to go to the big city and I want to be a journalist. But she has such a strong rural Southern accent. She Mm. she would watch Gilmore Girls and be like, I got to sound like that. I can't do anything. Nobody's going to take me seriously if I don't, if I have this, this voice, this dialect. And so she went to great pains to iron it out so that she could be a journalist. And sure enough, she is. Mm-hmm. And sure enough, she deeply regrets it because you know, her grandmother, you know, would look at her and be like, remember where you came from. Mm-hmm. And she feels like she just felt like she did such an injustice to her grandmother's mm-hmm. she, legacy. She, she gave something up in order to, you know, assimilate and she achieve. can't remember it. She can't get it back. She can't, wow. you know, she's not a performer. She, she's like, I, I said to her in the interview, I was like, do you think you could like get your mouth in it again. And she's like, I feel embarrassed that I don't have it. I don't know even how. Even when she, even when she gets drunk, it doesn't come out like <laughs> Kevin Keating, his boss, you give him a drink, the Boston comes rip roaring back. Well, sometimes vowels. She said it vowels. Vowels are often right. the loose, right? They're the loosest. What's interesting is, you know, when I went over to England all those years ago and started doing all these movies in an English accent, I had to really, I just thought when you do an accent, you kind of do the accent, right? I had a pretty good ear and I could like- You have imitate. a great ear. Your ear is like, no, I'm serious. Like you, you, you're like 
you're a sharpshooter. I mean, we're talking to a sharpshooter here. All right. <laughs> I, I'm like, as a, look, we're pals and everything, but like your, vo- your vocal tool is sharpshooter status. Well, I don't know. It's gone very nasally in the last, I don't know, since perimenopause. But, but you're, 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 but yes, the accents. Yes. I think yeah. that's, yes. Yeah. So I thought, cause I used to, I grew up, you know, in the days of making prank phone calls from your landline with your friends and doing all these accents and then like hysterically laughing and like peeing in your pants. So, and I was good, you know, good at doing English accent. So I got to England and I was like, okay, I'm, you know, I'm doing <laughs> Emma. I'm playing this Jane Austen heroine. I'm 22 years old. Just thinking, yeah, I can pull this off. Like, I wish I had that self-confidence, but I had an incredible vocal coach named Barbara Barkery, who I used for all the movies that I did in English accents. And she had to completely retrain my whole mouth, my tongue, where I put everything. It was such an incredibly difficult process. And it was not just hearing an accent and having parroting it. So I do understand this woman, Becca, completely relearning how to speak and the tongue getting stronger in different places and where you're putting like literally the placement of the tongue at the top Mm -hmm. of the mouth. Is it forward? Is it back? All that stuff. I can understand it being then you lose kind of the primary accent because, you know. Yeah. I mean, it's so interesting. I dorked out so hard to to that too in making man up because I lived in England for four years and then I wanted to be able to improvise within the accent you know, and play around with Simon Pegg at the time. And so not dissimilar. Best, I wor- can we pause and discuss Simon Pegg? <laughs> it's, it's, it was a delight to make that movie. I mean, honestly, I, part of it was like, I need to be able to improvise with Simon Pegg. Okay. Meaning, by the way, it was as Nancy, as Lake, maybe I'd think about too much as Nancy, because when I was talking a lot, you know, I, mean? like, <laughs> I was just like in there. And so I was like, <laughs> right, hey, you know, and and so it was this like estuary accent and I would live in it. I would go down to the shops that way. I would get, you know, fucking whatever. Like everything was okay. within that accent so that I could like ping pong with Simon. That Simon Pegg is Apple Martin's godfather. I did not know that. Oh, hey, look, fun facts, fun facts. Fun facts, you know, it's like um, we learn something about each other all the time. I am still at, from man up. I live in fear about the the word W I T H because I don't know if you remember. You did this. it with a V. <laughs> well, I would say instead of you know you could be within within the accent, you could be the, you could be successful, but then if you said with, you're fucked. So she was like, it's with, right? It's that liquid yeah. versus T H. And so I would still in American, I'll be like, we're there. We're going to go with them. Literally now I'll do it in American because I'm so, I was so scared and conditioned. (laughs) There are Um, certain, I remember those things. Like I remember probably can't even do the accent anymore, but when I was doing sliding doors and I had to say this line that I could not get, it was like, how did one of my Waterford crystal brandy glasses get into the laundry basket? Oh, and I just yeah. said really fast. Fucking A. <laughs> I was like, how did one of my Waterford crystal brandy glasses get into the whatever? Oh, yeah. It was really, that was tough. Crystal, yeah. Well, actually, the, okay, so I'll admit my hardest one, 
actually you did really good there. My hardest one was the glottal stop. So the, you know, like L-I-T-T-L-E instead of little or little, it's little. Jesus. That, that little like, ooh, like just, it's like, there's a little like kick of air right in the mm. middle. Guys, this is, this gets dorky, but it is. This is, <laughs> we're going real into this. Deep. Anyway, so the point is, you're right. I agree with you. It is athletic. It is practiced. It mm-hmm. is training. And it is a set of muscles that are often never paid attention to. Mm-hmm. And thus, you know, we kind of just operate on autopilot all the time. And so our voice naturally evolves mm-hmm. and shape shifts and sponges some information from here and a little bit of, ooh, you know, my stepmother spoke this way and my my mm. dad had this vowel that I held on to. And, you know, that cool cousin that I always emulated, you know, had a little bit of this and, you know, I smoked in my teens. And so I have this croak, you know, like there's all these things. Mm. I lived in three boroughs at the same time, you know, like I just love the kind of footprint or the tapestry, really, the, the yeah. tapestry of, of different sounds that we carry. Are there sort of like broadly agreed upon kind of agreements around societally speaking, oh, you know, if someone comes in and they do X, Y, and Z with their voice, they tend to be taken more seriously or like, what are the sort of tips that the, that the vocal experts say around? Well, the, one of the biggest takeaways I found was just from a linguistic standpoint, because once again, we're not talking about performance, Right. right. Because performance is different. No, than- we're talking about like, what about if you're, you know, you, you're in a presentation, you're in a board meeting, you're, or, you know, you're in front of people. I mean, honestly, slow down. Right. Yeah. What is that tendency to like freak out and <laughs> be like burn through something? Cause you, it's insecurity it's, nerves. I mean, our RPM starts revving up, you know, I but speaking in public. I hate I don't it like so it much. either. You have to do it all the time too. I freak you- out. I like pit out and get BO and like everyone you- is so <laughs> No, I I I I I'm, I'm shocked that you you do it all the time. You got to talk to I'm people. I'm so I I really really struggle. When you get it. up there though, do you then feel like, oh yeah, I do actually know how to do this. It's just the leading up to it. Or in process, it also I think in process as well. Like I just, this past weekend was at a 50th birthday for one of my oldest friends. We've been friends since we were 12. And I was like, you know, that thing where you're like, I have to make a toast. Oh my God. Oh my God. Oh my God. I can't eat. I can't eat. Like, yeah, I can't breathe. I'm going to vomit. And then it's like, you know, I'm thinking in my head, okay, this is touch point one, two, three. And then like, (laughs) I got up and I think it was a really solid toast, but I was like, sick. And then I sat down and I went into a shame spiral. Like I can't, it's really hard for me. (laughs) Listen, I think that you are 100% not alone. I think it's really important to talk about that. You know what? I, I go on talk shows and I'm like, I'm going to vomit. I'm also going to go to the bathroom at the same time. Like I, why is this part part of it? Well, it's just in general, you're sitting you're out there in such an unnatural. I love being at a dinner party. I mean, you know, we. Yeah. I like talking and fucking. This is great it. that we're chatting. You know, we get, and we're we get, real we there. Yeah, and when you're all of a sudden like, "Hello, hi, everyone," 
Thank you so much for being here. You just <laughs> like, turned into Maya Rudolph. I love yeah, it. It's like, hello, everyone. No, I just want to vomit and I have to do a live show right now. I have to do two live shows for this book and I'm sweating. But the point is, you know, I spoke to Tracy Ullman and this is like, she's a hero. God, <laughs> like, she's so amazing. Talk about agility with the voice. Oh, and she was a delight. What I took away from her was that, you know, here she can do Dame Judy Dench and she can do, you know, deep, deep Brooklynites. I mean, she could do anything. Yeah. And with such ease and compassion and, and like playfulness with love, like, you know, she, every, I mean, Angela Merkel, I can't even handle her. Angela Merkel is so good. Thinking of Angela Merkel as like a real sex object, you know, that everybody wants her. I absolutely adore it. It's just with such great love. And she has this freedom when she's within, with, see, within, when she's within, when she's within character. And so when she's within her characters, she Will sometimes, she said in the book, she was like, yeah, sometimes, you know, as Jame, Dame Judy Dench, I'll just go shopping. I'll just go down to the shops and you get everything for free. <laughs> and she's like, and it's just kind of a delight. And the way people look at you and, you know, and then she'll go down to the shops as her other, I think, ah, she's got a character that's like, um, oh, bless, you know, very small, low status, kind of fantastic. And she's like, and she's invisible. Nobody sees her. And it's so remarkable how you can shapeshift in that way. And so I think the answer to your question or our our discussion really about public speaking is we just have to get full prosthetics and dress as Dame Judy Dench for every public speaking event. And it'll just Well, I think, but let's unpack that for a minute because what does that mean, right? That means like you're standing fully in your energetic power. That means you're breathing all the way in your voice. Like, what does that mean? Well, you mean in the public speaking part? Yeah. Like if you're Dame Judy Dench, what is she doing? Well, I think that what she's bringing with her is her wide breadth of work and likability. Her breasts. Wide, her wide breasts of knowledge. No, I was kidding. She has a good poitrine, as we say in French. But I think... Let's not talk about her boobs. <laughs> Poitrine is a word that I just love. That the fact that the sorry sidebar, but the fact that the French have like a word for this area that's just like bosom chest. Yeah, poitrine. Yeah, of course they do. You have um, a legendary poitrine as well. Uh, <laughs> no, de rien, c'est vrai. Hein? <laughs> they sucked all the poitrine out of me. I know, <laughs> but they're doing fine. So. Wait, we were talking about, I do want to talk about- What the, um, What is Judy Dench? Why is she so effective? Why do the shopkeepers respect her, you know, Tracy Ullman as her when she walked? Like, what is it about that presence or voice? Well, she's, I think, high status without being a, without being a bulldozer. I think it's, I think that there is a respect of the- self-respect and status Mm -hmm. because I always talk about status when it comes to like characterizations because I think it's you know as we walk through even the playground I see my kids playing and I'm like okay so this is a whole status game and we're not talking about like in society but we're talking about it from a place of just who has the power it's a power dynamic so Mm -hmm. I think Dame Judi Dench probably imbues quite a lot of natural power Mm. in her in her sense of self 
Yeah. And, that's and then that's reflected confidence. in her voice. Yeah. And then her voice has, well, it's interesting because her voice is kind of soft in a way. Mm, it's true. Yeah. But it's, yeah. she's powering that softness with confidence. Right. And, but I think that when, you know, when we think about like even our friend Drew Barrymore, who has one of the most iconic voices iconic. on the planet, she's also in the book and she's really open about kind of very generous about talking about kind of the mechanics of what's going on here. Cause even in her expression, like when she's speaking on a daily basis, she's speaking from one side of her mouth predominantly. Yeah. So you can hear it, even if you're closing your eyes and listening to her voice, once you start to tune into that, you can hear it. And it's like, oh yeah, that's so interesting. And she said, actually, that I think it was like Adam Sandler who who, who called it out on her and said, you know, you, he made an improvisation in, in a movie they were doing. And they're like, I love the way you talk out of the side of your mouth. And she's like, gosh, I didn't even think of that. You know, And of course, that is a huge mechanical sort of implementation with her, her specific voice. And, and, and when she did that fantastic performance in the gray gardens that uh, she did on HBO, she, she trained it out. That totally. was incredible. She worked with Liz Himmelstein, amazing dialect coach. And she talks about that. And actually I, I interview Liz as well, who I've worked with. Oh, I can't wait to listen to this book, which is just an audio book. Is that it's, right? Yeah. It just lives as cool a sound. That? Yeah. And it's very, you're, because you are so, I mean, this is like for real, because you are a vocal sharpshooter, you will fucking get it. I think that a lot of us are very interested in our voices in a way that we're not even aware of. Because mm. for instance, when you have an opinion about, like when you say to someone on the street, which I did, obviously I went into the street and talked to people. And I was like, what? <laughs> I was like, when you hear your voice to most people, when you hear it played back on like a, a you know, a voice note or a voice note, how do you feel about it? And obviously the majority of the people are like, oh my God, don't even get me started. Stop. I hate it. You know, or they're like, I sound why like is that? Why do we so, hate our voices on the answering machine? They're not even answering machines anymore, but you know, voice notes. I think that we are disassociated with it. We've got some self-loathing sprinkled in there because mm -hmm. we are, we never listen to our voices back except for when we're speaking. And in when we're speaking, it sounds so much more resonant. It's vibrating against the muscles and the, the skeletal structure of our heads, right? Mm -hmm. So we actually have a skull that it's like vibrating against as the sound comes out. So it does have that kind of richness. And then when we hear it on, on a voice note, it's sort of like, it's higher up, it's tinnier, it's not, you know, mm. it just doesn't sound like something right. you recognize. Are you observing the way that your children speak differently because of all this research? And are you biting your tongue to not say to your daughter, oh, breathe more and speak from a lower <laughs> place? Like, I mean, I'd be interested. Yeah, I haven't heard. Like, you know, your kids are kind of older. And so you're, they're starting to kind of wrap their heads around a sound that they might carry for their adulthood. Yes. My kids are, are younger. My daughter's actually in the book very briefly as an Easter egg. I think that I, the training I'm doing as a parent is, is training myself to just right. be a good listener and to, you know, should Nova come back and be like, you know, all fry and fucking <laughs> up talky. I'm just going to love her anyway. 
And God, my mom was really, my mom was like, you have to breathe. She hated vocal fry. She yeah. was like, and she will literally like, there was, I had someone that worked with me at Goop for a while and she would, who had a raspy voice and my mother would be like, now listen to me. You have to breathe all the way into your diaphragm. And, <laughs> and so anyone you have who to support. vocal fry, I'm like, please don't get around Blythe Danner because she will just school you. Well, I think that the the raspiness thing is interesting. Sometimes people kind of attach on to raspiness as just like a thing they're kind of wearing for the week. Like they're like, I'm into kick pants right now, you know, like a, a high-waisted kick pant flare, you know, like they can take it on like a trend like that. So by the way, great trend, but they can take on like a, Hey, I'm going to be, I'm going to be raspy for now. You know, like, I just feel like that's something really interesting, but it's like really unsupported. Do you know what I mean? Like it really, can, like, can you hurt your voice like that? My mom said she did that in a play when she was younger and on Broadway and she damaged her cords. Well, yeah, I think that if you're doing it night by night by night by night yeah. by night, you know, for two hours or whatever, fucking, yeah, don't do that. But I think there is a way to do it supported. But I noticed my kids playing with that kind of thing. Right. So they like come home with a raspy voice and I'm like, are you sick? They're like, no, what are you talking about? I'm like, what is going on? You smoke cigarettes? Like you're five years old, like get your shit together. <laughs> Oh my God. How are they? They're great. Nova is Nova is seizure free. And that has been like the last six months. So we're and, feeling very And grateful. how is that? Why? Did, did is she grew out of it? I think you always have epilepsy. Once you have epilepsy, you, I mean, certainly with Nova, she has a genetic mutation. So you have, she, we titrated her off of her meds. That was the scary thing. Right. It's like, Hey, she's really not having seizures on these meds. And she had a, a, a mix of CBD as well as an amazing drug called Fintepla. And that was working for her. And, wow. and then we decided to try titrating off and Scott, my ex and I, who were really tight, we're close friends, we co-parent and we are in this, in this together. And we, we did that for her at the titration and mm -hmm. monitored, monitored. And then sure enough, she's currently seizure-free. I'm wow. walking wood. I'm touching and, everything. Yeah. And right now this little girl is, you know, very lucky and We'll just pay attention to it and have great respect. I still, when I walk through like an old hallway or something that has an overhead fluorescent light that's flickering in a in a spazzy way, I'm just like, I have like little, yeah, PTSD, you know, I'm little sure. PT, yeah, anything yeah, like course. that. Yeah. So, can I ask you about co-parenting with Scott? Because it's just such a fascinating. Yeah. I mean, topic you, for me, you are obviously, integral in my in in my success in that in that I I you know. I think when you are in a situation where you love someone so much and you create this family and this, these children together and you still love them, that love doesn't go away. You still have great respect for them. And you just, you know, I look to you as a, as a friend, but also obviously there was a reason why it was so infectious when you, you sort of coined uncoupling and you kind of permeated that through the the uh, like as made it a zeitgeist in in separation and divorce it was just really meaningful for 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 scott and i i can only speak for myself obviously as you all know but i can say that I, you know i feel grateful to continue to do the work even two and a half or two years out you know yeah how do you guys do that i mean i 
I always think it's so interesting because it's an ever evolving thing, right? Co-parenting with an mm -hmm. ex in, in our case, it's like, and then you have kids at every stage, you kind of have to recalibrate how you're, you know, and then dating people and marrying other people and it's required like a constant recalibration. So how are you guys doing all of that? You know, I meet women all the time who have separated from their, the father of their children and they really are looking for like, what are the actual tips that you have to keep the family together while you're not a couple? Well, that's such a great last sentence there, which is keeping the family together even whilst you're not a couple. You need two willing participants. You yes. need two willing participants. You can't do it alone. Correct. It is called co-parenting, co-leaning, <laughs> just that's caps, you know? Okay. So if you have one person who really wants to try the co-parenting thing and the other person is like, I hate you. I don't, I don't never want to see you again. It's going to be very difficult to kind of get over that hurdle. And so I feel for those people. I do. Cause I was also, I mean, in full disclosure, it's like, you know, when you're, when you're parting ways and you, there's a generosity in the spirit of that, even because nothing catastrophic happened. Right. It's like when it's very hard, I understand. And I, you know, I, I, I feel for couples who are in situations where one person really fucked up, you know, yeah. and now God dang it, we got to go up this hill together to try to figure out, are we staying together or going apart? And that's hard. So I can only imagine, but if you're in a situation where it's just you're not compatible as as marital as marriage partners, but you are as co-parents and you see the light on that, yeah. then it's just two willing participants to, for instance, go to therapy. Yeah. Even though you're not married. Yeah. You know, and I mean, you know this, but the idea is we still, two years out, every two weeks of our life together are on a phone call. We don't have to go in somewhere, but we do a phone call with our with our our couples therapist. To Amazing. maintain a sense of clarity and communication back to voice. Wow. But, what a great, beautiful commitment to your children that is. They feel it. Yeah. Because wow. then when there's drop-offs, it's not like, bye. You know, it's not like, bye, fuck you. You know, the <laughs> subtext being fuck you. It's just like, hey, you want to come in? You want you want a tea or something? You know, like, oh, well, how's that project going? You know, it's like, it's still this person that I know yeah. all of their family. <laughs> I know all of the, you know, like I'm the only other person who knows all the players and you're yeah. the only other person who knows all the players in my family. So and yeah. how I, everybody got the way that they are. And yes, the, you know, like it or not, you are family. If you have kids with somebody, you You're are family. family. Yeah. And I, my heart aches for people who don't have it you know, have this thing with their ex. And I'm not saying, look, if some people screw up so much and they hurt the other person so much that they can't get there. I I respect that. I do. I, I know that each person's experience is very different, but if there's a glimmer of hope and both sides want to try, it does take work. I mean, I feel like there's, it's also such an interesting challenge in that case. You know, like I, if somebody feels like they're justified in hanging on to, you know, they've been wronged. It's such an interesting proposition to, I mean, I remember 
our therapist at the time made each of us do this exercise of like, what if this was 100% your fault? And just going through the exercise of like how you could be accountable. And I I thought it was, a, I thought it was really fascinating because, you know, you, you rack up a list, right. Of like things that when you're married to someone, it doesn't have to be, Ugh. as you say, catastrophic, but there are things there that you hang on to. And to be able to let go of all those things, if you can, is powerful. It's powerful for both parties. Yeah. And then the other thing I would say, just like hot tip, you know, like in the same way that you said your therapist made you do that exercise. Yeah. Our, our therapist has an exercise that I feel like every fucking person should use with their kids, with their coworkers and with their, their, you know, romantic partners, which is perception check, right. you know? Yeah. You know about perception check, right? So that idea, am I allowed to talk about that? Yeah, please do. <laughs> okay. And please, please define it. Okay. So perception check, which I have enjoyed very much with my daughter too, who, who does suffer from anxiety. And I do it with my, my co-parent is you're going to say all of the things that you're bringing to the table right now. If you're thinking about, mm, this is kind of not sitting well with me. Here's kind of how, this is my experience. I'm going to say the whole thing. And then when you're done, I'd say, okay, so Gwyneth, before I respond, I'm not going to respond to what you just said. Gwyneth, before I respond, I just want to let you know, this is what I heard you say. And then at the end, I'm going to say, so I'll say the whole thing. And then I say, does that sound correct to you? Did I represent you properly? And then you'd say, yeah, that's exactly what I said. Or you'd be like, well, you missed that one part about, you know, whatever, the bell peppers that I didn't put on the table. Anyway, so then I get to respond and then you perception check me. You're checking in, making sure that I'm hearing exactly what you're saying and you're hearing exactly what I'm saying. And you have that opportunity to kind of course correct in real time. Wow. Holy shit. Because when my daughter says, you know, like, but I don't want to do that. And I just told you they're the worst day ever. And like, I don't want to go to the nursery and buy a cactus for that pot, you know, and you're like, okay, hang on, hang on. I just want to make sure I heard everything properly. Nova, what I heard you say was that you had the worst day ever and you really don't want to go and buy a cactus for the pot. You don't want to go to the nursery. Does that sound correct to you? You know? And then she's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know? And of course she feels really heard, you know, and seen. And, and then you're like, get in the fucking car. <laughs> and then I'm like, okay, so I heard you don't want to do it. We are doing it. But like, I heard what you said, you, you do not want to do that, but we're going to get in the car now. And then I want to continue to hear you. <laughs> right. Oh, so good. But with relationships, it's great. You know, I mean, look, I'm a work in progress. I just really liked it. <laughs> Aren't we all? Aren't we all? <laughs> I don't know. You do that like when you're dating too, <laughs> like a new boyfriend. I'm trying. <laughs> I try to bring it to the table in work. I've done it like on, on meetings with like producers and stuff where I'm like, people are feeling a little heated or there's real right. miscommunication. And I'm like, trying to de-escalate hey, with them. Yeah. So good. It's like a real kind of negotiation yeah. tactic. That said, relationships is a whole nother. I mean, there's you're bringing sex and love and like complexity and and you know relevance and all that stuff. I mean, you're doing great. Look at you, just married. <laughs> you're married. You're just 
I am married and I love being married to this person. I mean, it's beautiful. I like looking in on it and going. Do you want to get married again? Do you think? It's such a good question. Um, Would you? Like, are you open to that? Well, I'm wise enough to know that I don't really know the answer to that. Yeah. Because it's like right now today, I go, why would I do? What what are you you talking about? I was married two years ago. I was just married. I did it. I had some complex relationships with the idea of marriage anyway, coming mm-hmm. into my first marriage. I assume Scott was like, I don't think she's going to say yes. <laughs> I'm like on the record being like, this whole system is antiquated. <laughs> we live too long. It's not possible. You know, like I was doing that on every interview because I I think it's inherently a oh. bit, but I think at 43, you know, I'm like, very free to experience people and be with my family and whatever that family is. I build and architect it to be my friends and my loved ones. And yeah, I date. And I think that's a part of the human experience that I have the privilege to participate in. Getting married is such like case by case scenario. You know, it's like, it's so where I decide where I feel in the moment. You know. I felt like that too, you know, after my marriage, my first marriage, after the dis- dissolution of it, I was like, I don't know. I don't know. And then Brad really changed my mind. I mean, you guys are, I, I it's like Brad and you, you have this thing that's, it's, it gets to, to be successful in this part of your life. Like if you met him at 20, it's like, yeah. it's just, it had to be now. And so I respect the way that the universe delivers like that. So I'm like, because you guys are now, Mm. and this is your, this is your chapter, your big fat book of it. It's your book, you know, and you had another book, you know, and that was equally as fulfilling. And so that's how I look at it too. And that's great. I say to my kids all the time, because they're like, well, I don't want to die. And I'm like, okay, listen to me. I was like, you gotta, first of all, everyone is going to die. Okay. And everyone's born. So, I mean, every, so you look around, you go, you're sitting on the bus, you're looking at everyone. They've all been born and they're all going to die. It's just nobody's special treatment. You say this to your five-year-old? My, my, yes, my five and (laughs) eight-year-old. And my eight-year-old is very existential. So we get into this shit all the time. Interesting. Always. I mean, my five-year-old is telling me, he's like, is there an asteroid that's going to hit the earth and Aww. we're going to then all die? And I was like, well, so not tonight. Existential thoughts with Nova. And she and I said to her, I was like, look, the whole you, you, the whole thing, we all know we get born. We all know we die. The thing you concentrate in life on is the massive fat book on in the in-between, those the front and the, cover, the front cover and the back cover. Yeah. So that's, you got a big book and you're just, you're on like one of the like starting chapters, like I, it, there's just so many chapters you don't even know, you know, so you got a lot to do. You don't even have to think about it, mm-hmm. honestly. And does she's that, like, oh. yeah, does she's like, I got a big book. Oh, <laughs> huge. I mean, it's so big. It's one of those books that you're like, I'm never going to purchase. Yeah. It's so many pages. There's so many so, fucking pages. But you like, know what? Did... It goes real fast. I know. Anna, I mean, Anna. <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> I mean, I'm telling you, it's like in two seconds, Nova's going to be in college and then we're going to be talking about it. <laughs> I know. 
I tell you, it goes way faster than you think. I know. I mean, your kids are like, I look at them like they're so grown up. They're so grown up. It's like so scary. Yeah. Okay. I just want to ask you one last question. I didn't really ask you about what you are hoping with the book. How do you hope people hear it? How do you hope that they use it? Like what's the catalyst for it in terms of how you hope it impacts people? I mean, look, I think that Inside Voice is really (laughs) a place. No, it's really a book. It's a, it's, it's a, it's an experience that is definitely, you know, sensual play for the ears. And it's funny, right? Yeah. It's like fucking funny and light. Lots of voices and. But Jeff Goldblum's in it. Pam Greer gets real in there with me about, I think it's called, you can fact check this. Pam Greer, she, she talks to me about psychogenic dysphonia, which is when you lose your voice due Uh to trauma. So it's like, there's a, there's a kaleidoscope of different vocal experiences that we're kind of unpacking and unfurling kind of judgments, but then also there's some how-to, there's a little bit of games in there. You know, ultimately I think it's, you know, you leave the book being aware of your own voice and the sounds of the voices around you and perhaps allowing yourself to be a little more generous with you, with how you kind of receive different accents and dialects and vocal qualities even, Mm. you know, and it is about, yeah, it's like, it's a cultural and social discussion Mm. that allows you to be very participatory in the experience. So Mm -hmm. it's, it's definitely an inclusive hug of, of exercises and awarenesses. Fun. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm very proud of you. You always surprise me with what you're up to. I mean, seriously, like whether you're directing uh, Pam and Tommy, such a great show. I was so excited to see your, I mean, your credit as a director. You're just so talented and awesome and hilarious. And I love you so much. Love you too. Love you too. Can't wait to see your face in real life. I know. Let's get it together, guys. All right. Très bien. Très bien. À tout à l'heure. À tout à (laughs) l'heure. Thank you for joining my chat with Lake Bell. I hope you'll listen to her fascinating book, Inside Voice. Thanks for tuning in. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studios. I hope you'll listen, follow, rate, and review all of our episodes, which are available for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Odyssey, or wherever you get your podcasts.